In the most divisive of times, the great debates rage on. Who was the best Batman? Was the book truly better than the movie? Did Han shoot first? Nerds with opinions will seek to answer life's greatest questions. fellow nerds you are listening to nerds with opinions episode number 68 as always i'm your host matt holbin today on the podcast i am joined by guest host jimmy levins and we are discussing season two of what we do in the shadows if you have not seen that season yet there are spoilers ahead so you're going to want to go back rewatch that if you haven't seen the show at all watch all of it because it's fantastic and then there's also a season one review of what we do in the shadows here on nerds with opinions so go and check that out then come back to this episode and listen to that but if you have seen season two of what we do in the shadows this is a comprehensive look and review we kind of break down the whole entire season actually jimmy and i watched um at least half this season i think together via zoom and Honestly, thought it was great, and you'll you'll hear both of our takes on it, and uh, it's a fantastic show. So, here it is, the review of season two of What We Do in the Shadows, here today on Nerds with Opinions. So we're live, so let's go ahead and get right into this. Nice. Mr. Jimmy, guest host. Welcome back, my friend. How are you? Good to be back, Mr. Matt. I uh, I see we're both rocking hats to sheath our uh, large quantity of uh, hair that we've amassed. I know, yeah. I have this, in case for those listeners uh, who can't see our podcast, I have this long mane, and as I lift my hat off, it just flops down to my shoulders Whooshing it in the wind. It's it's getting there. My my mine as well. It's definitely the longest I've ever had my hair since like eighth grade. Yeah. I'm not gonna be impressed until your Nandor length. Yeah, no. I'm I'm going in to get like <laughs> not a haircut. I'm definitely gonna get tamed a little bit on uh with at uh, Heather's place just because like it. I kind of want to control it more because one end's <laughs> a little longer than the other. So just kind of the like. Manscape my main mainscape, whatever it's called. Ooh, easy with that terminology. Mainscape, because it's like <laughs> or, I don't know. I really have never really cut my hair this like. I really don't know what the how to do long hair. So it's been kind of a like I had to get more conditioner. I've had to like brush it and blow dry it. It's been kind of a a whole new world for me. Oh, I'm with you. I uh, I'm learning as as I go along as well. Yeah. So. so Let's get right into the episode. We are discussing what we do in the shadows, season two. They just recently wrapped, and you and I are both huge fans of the show. We have done a season one review on this podcast, and it was high time that we do season two. And it's uh, really, really, if it hadn't already been, you know, like taking off, if you will, in the first season, I think it's really, really, really cemented its its place as one of the best comedies going right now uh, after season two so since we've done a season one review 
I want to kick this off with just talking about some of the predictions that we made in that episode for what we thought was going to happen in season two. But before that, if you're listening to this right now and you have not watched all of season two, I'm just going to say it right now. Let's, let's say spoilers ahead because I, I don't really see how we're going to be able to do this without some spoilers. So stop listening. <laughs> Go watch it. It's on Hulu right now. Uh, and spoilers from here on out. So let's talk about some of these predictions that we made and then we'll kind of start really busting into the season as a whole. First off, I think the one that we both nailed was kind of what we thought was going to happen with Guillermo. So let's discuss that. Yeah, no, definitely. Throughout the entire season of season two, I had like my, let's call it my prediction bingo, uh, where I was like checking off, okay, we were right, we were right, we were wrong, we were right. And I was so close to getting a full bingo. It wasn't quite there, but you're right. We definitely nailed it with Guillermo because, of course, the the smoking gun or the red herring, wherever the terminology is, uh, at the end of season one was that, like, oh, he's learning his uh, untapped power and abilities that have flown through the Van Helsing clan for generations, and now he's finally helming the, the throne of the Helsings. And I don't know why I channeled that voice, but uh, I was really... You sound just like David Attenborough. (laughs) Yes. Oh, Laszlo from the show. Yeah, A little little, little more Attenborough, but okay. Yeah, I... Yeah, yeah, we definitely nailed that one. I I think that was... The the writing was kind of on the wall there. Um, But... They... I think took it a little further than what we were predicting. I, I, they did a really good job at like making it a whole entire season arc of kind of him toiling with his desire to be a good familiar and become a vampire. And then all his obvious talents at being a vampire hunter, um, two ridiculous levels of where he just like, he can't get away from the fact that he, he just is really good at killing vampires. Um, one thing that we predicted that did not come to pass, uh, Beanie Feldstein's character didn't appear at all, which I we'll talk mm. a little bit more about that later. I, I, I have some feelings on that. But Same. that was one we got um, incorrect. I'm trying to think of some of the other ones that we, that we predicted. Um, I think what? we were kind of like somewhat close with predicting what Mark Hamill's character was going to be because yes. his cameo was announced ahead of time. And yeah, we were in the ballpark. Yeah, my, I think when my I think I can't remember if it was yours or mine, but our first prediction for Hamill was he was a vampire hunter of some sort. Or I first thought it was going to be a flashback sequence, and he would be the original Ben Helsing, kind of like a flashback sequence, but it's done black and white, kind of James Whale, Frankenstein, uh, like Dracula from nineteen thirty one movie look was kind of okay, my. Yeah. Um, but he did not disappoint. Regardless of what role he took, he did not disappoint. Jim the Vampire. <laughs> I know. It's just a, like That's the funniest thing is the fact that like you'd think like everyone has Nandor, Laszlo, and the more modern vampires have simple names, but Mark Hamill was just, I'm Jim. The Jim man. the Vampire, yeah. I know. I thought um, I to Jim for some reason. I can't remember exactly. What's that? I feel like there's something akin between him and me, and I can't figure out what. <laughs> I don't know. It's on the tip of my tongue. I, I, I don't know. I, it's escaping me. 
Uh, I feel like we kind of discussed a bit about like the Vampire Council, and then they obviously played a role in this season two and yeah. uh, as well. And I think the, the writing was on the wall for there uh, for that as well. So let's let's dive right in. So in this second season, we we discussed in the in season one episode that they they certainly have, and I think this ties nicely into the world uh to, excuse me to the predictions we made we discussed how they kind of introduced some world building in terms of you know outside of what the uh, the original source film um introduced where it was basically there's vampires and their natural enemies are werewolves mm-hmm. and even in season one like you know they introduced like babadook and and there's obviously more to this universe and with like the creatures and monsters that are in it, but they went hard in this season. Like they really, really did some serious world building in terms of the different type of creatures. Obviously it doesn't really leave Staten Island at all, but they introduce a lot more of the different types of monsters and species that, that are in this world. So Let's discuss that a bit. Um, and so let's see here. There was a literal troll. <laughs> Colin Robinson thought he was being trolled, and it's it's a literal troll. There was uh, a necromancer, zombies, ghosts, witches. Which w- witches are are that's introduced in the first season, but they went like really further in depth. There was a whole witches episode. A- am I missing anything? Well, it was kind of, I don't know if it would really count, but like in the episode where Nick Kroll returned, they kind of almost established a different types of species of vampire, especially with his friend. Uh, the one who's almost a mutant vampire uh, being in the sewage for so long. Like, I can't remember if she was a, an actual mutant vampire or she was just like, an, like a, a branched off species of a vampire. Oh, in- correct, yeah. Yeah, so like I feel like they kind of introduced in a sense of like how the different types of like humans over the course of like evolution. I'm like wondering, is this their way of introducing different types of like vampires that have kind of evolved or devolved? Well, certainly how the vampires appear is mm-hmm. all sorts of different. You know, you have vampires that are pretty humanoid looking, other than kind of like the pale skin and the fangs. And then you have vampires like, uh, for instance, the the vampire that Dave Batista played in the first season, yeah. where you know, very kind of almost a Buffy the Vampire esque, like super over pronounced, like uh, brow ridge. So I don't know, I, like they didn't, they haven't like explicitly said like, okay, well this is a different class of vampire, or a different species of vampire. But but yeah, I'm with you because that character, which let's look. It was some like weird name, right? Like just some like. Let's look it up. Because um, it was on the episode of Return. Carol, Carol. Carol. Yes, a very yeah. Well, I kind of dig that because they're kind of establishing, uh, like even at the end of season one with the or near the, near the end of season one with the council episode, they showed like the different types of like, uh, of like. Uh, vampire leaders uh so in a way it's almost like vampires have a different like embodiment and aesthetic a style based on region 
kind of like with humans over the course of evolution. So it's kind of that, that was kind of my interpretation. Well, they even kind of introduced that with like the Baron, which like, like he has no genitals and, you know, and he's like, obviously not humanoid looking at all because they have to address that. Like, oh, you have to kind of, you know, you, you, you stick out like a source. I'm like when they do that episode where they go out and like party and stuff. It was definitely um, the one that was the most like throwback to like for me at least the uh, David uh, Gary Oldman Dracula uh, specifically, especially just like kind of like that one right. Where, mm-hmm. And they kind of they they introduced that concept a bit w- in the film because like Pita is like a very Nosferatu esque um, yes vampire, and then they kind of explain it in that as that he's super super old. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if maybe that has something to do with it, that, like, vampires have evolved over the years. It's like like the eternal life versus eternal youth, in a way, is... Uh... Well, well, okay, that, but what I'm meaning is, like, that, like, a vampire that, let's say, was, like, made in, you know, let's... I, I don't know, like closer to like biblical times would look very, very different than like a vampire that was made in like the year 2000, for instance. And maybe that's not necessarily like an aging thing because they don't age. And maybe it's more of a, of a evolution of the vampire species. That's what I mean. I'm definitely with you on that theory. Cause like, uh, cause like, and then we also might be overthinking this for a comedy show. (laughs) Well, that's, I think that's the great thing about what we do in the shadows is the fact that there are... Taika Waititi, why are we not in the writer's room right now? We're fucking geniuses. Why have you not thought of this? I mean, Clement left. I mean, like, there's a spot be filled. I mean, like, come on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, come on, Taika. You know, you obviously need help. Like, you're, you're floundering in your career right now. It's, it's, it's sad. Like, you need, you need help with you, with your writing. Like, you know, geez. Nothing else going on. What else do you have to do? I mean, like certainly not Oscar nominated. Like, come on. I know. Not like <laughs> you have a contract with Netflix to adapt every Roald Dahl novel. I mean, nothing like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're, you're not working in like the Star Wars universe and the MCU at the same time. Like, no big. Nah. Yeah. No. What, who is he? Who is he? Yeah. Yeah. Has been. <laughs> <laughs> I love him. So, so, um, with this introduction of like other monsters, creatures, well, a, I want to ask you, like, do you do you think that that was a welcome addition to this season? Because it, it is, in terms of the kind of like story outside of like the the o- the overarching story, which is basically the story of kind of Guillermo. It's really Guillermo's story, yes. um, and how you know he's getting on being a familiar that's you know, seemingly never going to be turned into a vampire and then, you know, fighting his natural predilection of vampire hunting. But there's kind of almost these like, to borrow a term from like X-Files, monster of the week sorts of episodes where, yeah, there's the ghost episode. There's the witches episode. There's the troll episode. Uh, You know, there's like the very, the uh, season opener is very much like a, zombie episode with um Topher played by Haley Joel Osment which was a fantastic fantastic cameo he did a great job but mm-hmm. w- were you into that or that they like kind of leaned f- real heavy into those 
monster of the week kind of creature feature sorts of episodes? Oh, absolutely. Cause I feel like that's what's kind of been its bread and butter that makes it more of a breakaway or a standalone. Uh, it, it makes it its own thing compared to the movie. Cause the movie definitely established the universe and built a little bit upon it. But this show uh, pivots out and branches out more in other directions. Kind of talking about uh, world mythos and world like, uh, like, uh, uh, I can't remember what the study of like monsters is like because uh, cryptozoology is more the study of like uh, of like uh, undiscovered like species, but like it basically branches off in other areas. It talks about kind of like with the zombies and the necromancer and the witches and there are different types of vampires, kind of world horror. And I feel like that's where it becomes its own original like source. And uh, to answer your question, I loved it because it it definitely helped. Uh, create kind of a standing a firm stance on really what this world is which will in turn help the writing help the actors and help the characters because i think the biggest strength this show has is it's in an absurd premise we all know that but kind of like with a lot of absurd over the top uh movies shows or even absurd over the top directors is the fact that like what makes it work is when not just essentially the world's established, but when the actors who are playing the characters in this world fully embrace it. Yeah. And the fact that no one seems to be tongue in cheek or fourth wall, well, it is kind of fourth wall breaky because it's inherently mockumentary, but there isn't any sense of like, Oh, we're in a silly show. They, you really feel like the people in this, uh, the cast really feel like they're, uh, they're rolling around, they're having fun, they're embracing it versus they're like, I'm just in some cartoon, it's fine. Uh, and I and not to give a weird comparison, but like say, I think what certain movies by like say Wes Anderson or Taika Waititi or even Michael Bay films work is when the actors just embrace the over-the-topness, embrace the absurdness. Right. And I think that's what this show is uh, definitely doing when it's expanding and world building through adding different types of characters and monsters. Yeah, I agree with that. I, yeah, because I think that like the troll episode is a, is a perfect example of that because when they introduce like what the troll actually looks like, it's arguably like really weirdly juxtaposed, juxtapositioned um CGI like it's not bad CGI but like it doesn't like fit in with like a mockumentary sort of style in my opinion but it was like it it seemed like a perfect fit yeah because I was expecting just some guy dressed as a troll with like prosthetics this is one of their early I would say one of their few times they've used like full-on CGI to create a character uh well the the ghost episode well that was heavy in CGI yeah, but they still retain their humanness. Uh, but like right. the troll, it's like this one was literally what we. And that's another thing it does is the fact that it kind of talks about how like mythological and like uh, and myth- myth- uh, mythological creatures have almost evolved with the times. How trolls have become our definition of a troll now, which is that. Right. This- so I think that's pretty clever too. Yeah, I agree. So, kind of still in this in this topic what sort of like monsters or creatures would you like to see introduced moving forward or maybe explored further like in terms of just kind of horror or you know um mythologies well lore? definitely 
most of the monsters they establish, even though they've been definitely adopted and appropriated by American culture, they're inherently European or if not like Southeast Asian or Middle Eastern in origin. I would love them to do kind of more of the uh, American mythology, more cryptozoology revolving uh, like American monsters. Like it'd be cool, like it might be totally off, but it'd be cool if they did something like say Bigfoot or the like, um, or other types of Sasquatch incarnation. Uh, Cause I actually, uh, for those who don't know, like in middle school and early high school, I went through this huge phase where I was really into mythology and cryptozoology and different types of like cryptids. And so, like, there's all these different types of famous American monsters. There's, like, the, um, the Sasquatch. We also have, like, um, uh, the, well, technically it's more Mexico than American, but there's overlap with the, the, the Chupacabra. And so I, I would like kind of them to almost uh, explore more American monsters, ones that are kind of inherently, uh, like, northern in origin. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, but, uh, Sasquatch is a good one. Um, just kind of going off of like where they're at geographically in the show, being on the East Coast, mm-hmm. like the Jersey Devil is a is an interesting like um, myth. Um, that could be interesting. Like I'm imagining, maybe like, like the Mothman. Oh, that's a good one. Because I'm just imagining the Jersey Devil is just like this, like, like I don't know, like just some like sleazy New Jersey like car dealer or something. I don't know, just like some, yeah, like, yeah, or like almost like Jersey Shore, but he's a Jersey Devil. Or something. Yeah, some something like you know that kind of stuff. I think would be uh, would be fun. You know, they've definitely explored like reanimation, so maybe like a Frankenstein's monster esque sort of monster yeah could be kind have, of cool or interesting yeah because they haven't really dealt more into that type of because they've done a ton of bram stoker um not so much anything with like mary shelley or even hg wells uh so i feel like there's definitely a lot more like room to grow or even lovecraftian that would be really cool if they kind of because lovecraftian okay. is cthulhu or something yeah something with like a before man subterranean cephalopod like monsters because all that's in public domain so they're totally allowed to have full reign oh yeah that's a good point so let's transition into um we kind of talked about it earlier kind of the you know creature feature monster of the week but i think another thing that's in a similar vein in terms of like a like one-off sorts of episodes are the fact that they do these like single character like isolated episodes and they're not, it's not just a single character the whole time. I mean, just kind of the overarching story of that episode is focusing on a single character. We saw it, um, with the episode in the first season of, uh, Nandor, you know, pursuing his, uh, ancestry. We saw another one with him where he's trying to become an American citizen. And so they, they did that again in the, in this season. Specifically, the Collins promotion episode is really the one I was hoping for, where we kind of really got to focus more on Colin Robinson a little bit about like because he's still kind of a mystery, and I, and I like that they haven't. He doesn't even know kind of what he's all about, um, 
And they, there's even a funny line, I think, in one of the early episodes. Oh, I think it's the ghost one where they are like, oh, well, certainly if we're all dead, there's ghosts of us. And they're like, but we don't know about Colin Robinson. He's like, yeah, I don't really know my deal either. Um, but so that's one. And then uh, you've got one. Uh, it's uh, on the run where the, we're introduced. It's really kind of a a Laszlo based story. And so anyways, I, what I wanted to um, talk about was that's a thing that they do that's a very strong attribute in terms of the writing of this where we're not completely abandoning the the overarching story, but we're still telling kind of fun one-off episodes that involve our characters, but it's giving a little more of a shine to like a specific character and doing a really good job at character development. And it seems to then have a good payoff as the season moves forward. Let's talk about that. They seem to be a nice kind of departure from the, the overarching, you know, focus of, of the season. Are you into those episodes? Oh yes. Cause it, it definitely reaffirms uh, what I said earlier is the fact that by giving these characters and especially the actors kind of wiggle room to explore, have fun, embrace, uh, and kind of have a an individual spotlight. It allows them to kind of almost uh, kind of flex their muscles comedically and acting wise, especially because uh, one thing I remembered in a featurette when they were talking about how season two is different than season one is how they realized it was kind of uh, the actress plays Nadja said this where she's like, oh yes, after season one, we learned the hard way how we shouldn't always film outside. Uh, because Toronto in the winter is very cold, so we're going to film more inside. So season two is primarily indoors, which allows them to be more like individual, uh, especially when there's like they're in the remains that when they're in the confines of their room or in their office or within their uh, other like their neighbor's house. So there's definitely more. It, it kind of plays that very common uh, writing, writing trope in comedy where you just put people in a room and let them have at each other. And yeah. that, and that that uh, that um, not the deba- the debacle, but so that banter and that exchange of energies of contrasts really, really, I think uh, creates this season a lot more distinctly comedically, because we have, like you said, standalone episodes for Nandor or standalone interactions with um, uh, Laszlo and Nadja. We even have a lot of individual interactions with more Colin and Guillermo and other characters that are more in. Uh, reference to them, like their family, their history, their ancestry. Um, it definitely helps uh, create a more well-refined character, which is great for us, the audience, because then by us understanding who the character is, we can connect with them better and get more invested in the show and the character as a whole. It's a good way also, I have found, where you can you can give backstory in a medium that would otherwise be a little difficult to incorporate backstory. I suppose you could try to find a way to like, oh, this is a archival footage sort of situation in this documentary. But I think they have to be careful do, introducing anything like that because it isn't a, it, it isn't part of the precedence that they've set with this style of show and, and its source material. So by doing these standalone episodes, like for instance, the, the on the run episodes, a perfect example of this where 
you know, we get to see a little more of the depth of the Laszlo character, but then he, he talks, you know, by the Jim character showing up, we learn a bit about his backstory and then we learn more about it when he goes on the run. You know, he, he talks about how he, this is his alter ego for when he's in trouble is the Jackie Daytona character. And so I, I enjoy things like that where, you know, just little, there's just little nuggets of this where we learn more about their backstory instead of it's, it's kind of, it's real, it's a real subtle way of writing a backstory where, and it's, it's nice because you're not force feeding it to your audience when it's kind of not necessary. And and I, that's an interesting line. I feel like with, with writing film or, or television where sometimes the origin story or the backstory is really clutch and sometimes we don't need it and we can just kind of be dropped in there. But this is kind of a cool way of doing a little bit of both where we're dropped in their world and as we go along, we're learning more about their backstories. So it thus defeats the need for an origin story because, you know, we're we're getting that along the way. So, and I think the kind of more singular character-focused episodes are a great vehicle for that because then you can kind of really write a lot about a specific character, you know, for that, in this case, half hour or whatever it is. So we kind of talked a bit about Colin's episode and I wanted to talk about him specifically because he gets a lot more development in this season than he did in the first season. And they, they they did a bit of that in the first season. Like he has that episode with um, Vanessa Bayer and it's, it's, largely focused on him, but I mean, he kind of gets his own episode in this season and we explore how I suppose the ambiguity of like what type of vampire he is and the limits of his powers, which there seems to be none. (laughs) And I thought that was very, very fun and interesting. And it kind of goes back to that thing you were talking about where like they've almost they haven't fully like told us that this is the case, but they have introduced this idea of that there is absolutely, you know, different species of vampires and that we maybe don't even kind of know the full like scope of that um, because Colin Robinson is an energy vampire, but obviously like, you know, he can really 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 like multiply his power if you know in the right environment and that episode you know explores that did you enjoy the kind of the turn from kind of the more background player I would say in in the first season to much more of a profiled character in this season oh yeah because like I think season two show, uh, sorry, season one showed us uh, really who the background characters were, which was Guillermo and Colin. And season two allowed those two to really shine more. Uh, and I'm yeah, I, I, it's like they're coming out party. Exactly, yeah. Because I think, and of course this totally could have changed, but like I feel like in any like uh, comedy or sitcom, 
is the first season is kind of the test of waters where which characters do our audience and viewers react to the most which one do they respond to the most and then we'll work from there and that's how shows can really keep going like it's and same with the office for instance where like the side characters in season one became more like primary like uh fan favorites in two three four five six etc i love that you use that example and because i think you're absolutely right where you just you write in like little little things of like well there's this like weird character that we've written that's kind of going to be more a few lines in every show and then once you realize that oh, we've kind of got something here, then we can kind of do more Collins specific episodes. And uh, yeah, the, the office is a perfect example of that. Yeah. Cause I feel like Colin was kind of like, he was established, but really I think once the writers realized that fans were reacting to him, they're like, okay, we can kind of more pivot in a more specific direction. Cause I feel like that's where a lot of good creativity is put where I don't want to say it's structured freedom or restricted freedom, but it's essentially when, you're put within a confines of a scenario or a character and that kind of gives you structure to work within. And for me, that works as uh, someone who works in the creatives. And I feel like for the writers, it definitely helped because I would say by kind of vaguely establishing a character in the beginning, it allowed them almost more of a playground in the future seasons to come. Because like you said, we kind of realized that Colin might be the most powerful character in the whole show in a way. He absolutely is, because in that one episode that's about his promotion, we learned that with enough power, he can instantly drain people, he can instantly drain plants, he can fly. At one point, he makes multiple copies of himself, <laughs> so he's like can literally clone himself on the fly. And then remember, he like ages the vampires. So yeah. I, I would argue that and I mean, he's a daywalker too. Like, I would argue that he's arguably the most powerful out of the vampires that live together. Exactly. Um, yeah, they're playing with their expectation. Definitely. Well, and I love that. Like, the the only thing that kind of like reins him back in is that he does have that desire for like connection. So he's like, okay, I'll cool it because otherwise, I'm not gonna have anybody to connect with. <laughs> I think. I think. I think that also is a benefit to his character in the writing is because like. Uh, he's he's not human but he's almost the most mortal in the sense that oh, like certainly and i think the, and because of that they kind of definitely let him play with his more he's more aware of his social place he's more aware of how other people perceive him and he's more concerned of really of course it is definitely aimed in one his self because he's like well i gotta maintain my network because how am i supposed to drain them if they leave me so he's very strategic and plotty <laughs> Because even when things don't work out, he'll just he could just move to the next office and just slowly like grow like a mold and right, and that's exactly what he does. Yeah. So the uh, the thing that I find interesting, Hamlet. I remember you and I had this conversation when we were doing the episode covering the first season, where we were talking about like he's kind of a vehicle for introduce, you know, kind of opening up some more world building. But then he's also a vehicle for relatability with the audience because, you know, everybody kind of – and I, I love they even introduced that. They're like, oh, you know, he says, oh, you probably know an energy vampire. So it's a concept that, like, we can kind of, like, wrap our heads around. Like, oh, yeah, you know that person that's just like, oh, gosh, it's exhausting talking to them. Yeah. But I, I like that I, he – I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say I definitely could name some right now, but I'm not going to. So yeah, after 
podcast, I'll tell you who my energy vampires that I know of are. All right, excellent. Um, I I love that they kind of made him evolve and grow beyond just that sort of vehicle to showing, you know, that he's, there's much more to the character in terms of like the mythos behind like what type of vampire he is. So I, I, I greatly enjoyed that. I think that his character development was one of the strongest aspects in this season for sure. Uh, Next, though, I want to talk about, you mentioned it earlier, uh, aside from the Colin character just really, really growing, this season is largely Guillermo's story, and they really, really, really expanded him. And obviously, like, he played a very, you know, important role in the first season, but it's just this kind of, the overarching story of this season is his internal struggle. So let's talk about that. He's very, very conflicted through this whole season and kind of has this, yeah, I, I don't know. I, uh, love hate sort of relationship with Nandor. That's very, very complicated. And he has this love hate sort of relationship with his place in the vampire world. That's very sort of complicated. So, so let's discuss this because Season one, very, very much set up to this. And then they kind of took it way, way, way further in this season. He kind of uh, encompasses a lot of uh, familiar comedic uh, feeling characters. Like he kind of encompasses the typical like neglected spouse or partner character. He, uh, he kind of represents essentially kind of uh, kind of the awkward, shy buddy as well. Well, he's also like the kind of the the straight man to like the the absolute idiocy or just ridiculousness of the other characters. And he also is kind of like the uptight like character that has to kind of react to things that are, you know, that the other characters doing that are going to clearly bother the uptight character. Yeah, and he also kind of weirdly plays, like in other horror movies, in the traditional sense, he would have been killed off a long time ago because of just, like, the way he looks and acts, he's usually the first to go or, like, one of the early ones to go in a horror movie formula. And I th- and it definitely riffs on that. Specifically, another thing it riffs on that I didn't really, really kind of notice, especially when he's, like, dealing with his new urges and instincts, it's weirdly riffing on the whole notion of like in other movies when someone's transitioning into a vampire or a werewolf, that most of them is struggling with these new instincts and inhibitions and instincts. And they're riffing on that, but in the reversal sense where he's like, that's true. He'll only like, he'll just like toss a stake on the ground and all of a sudden it'll just wind up in a, the chest of a painting. So they're definitely riffing on him in this transitioning sense uh, or in the like transformation sense. Where it's like instinctual. Yes. And and it's funny because in any other scenario, in other vampire movies, that would be played up as like, he is like, I can't bite this person. I must feast. I must drink blood. And he's like holding himself back. Because we saw that in the, um, in the, uh, in the character in season one, where she's a college girl and she is like trying to control her new urges. But then it's like, because that was the first assumption of what we'd see from Guillermo, 
But the fact that like he almost isn't really getting what he's wanting, he's not getting fair uh, reciprocation from, uh-huh. in a weird way, like his master in this case, kind of a weird way to use vocabulary. Uh, his partner, his like his uh, friends, he's not getting a fair reciprocation. He's not getting a, uh, and the fact that he's almost acting out or reacting in a sense that is contradictory to what he originally wanted and what his partners are. And that's definitely, I would say, is one of the more original uh, introductions to the vampire genre, I would say. That's a, yeah, that's a really astute um, point because they, even the, even the idea of, of a familiar, I mean, and and obviously it's, it's meant to be in a, in a comedic sense, but they really kind of explore that subculture too. You know, and they started it in season one where obviously it is like a second class citizen in the vampire world for sure. But we see different like classes of of familiars. Then it's explored even more in in this season where uh, eventually (laughs) he goes to become a familiar um, for uh, who he believes is the vampire Celeste, who is actually just pretending like and that was a funny um like a funny, I think like, uh, satirization of like influencer culture. Cause the Celeste character is very much like if an influencer was a vampire. Did, did you, did you pick up on that? Oh, you know, definitely like, uh, yeah, it was kind of like, um, it, it definitely rips on the whole social cliques and social groups. Uh, and they apply that toward our world and their sense of reliability to the vampires world. Uh, right. And I love that in the end, it's like, oh, this this is just a and it, you know, it's all just a, a front. It's just an appearance that Celeste is is putting on like she hasn't changed at all. It's, yeah. You know, it's it's just an image because vampires almost use it like the baited carrots uh, to like trick their like kind of in a visual metaphor, like in cartoons when someone has like a string and a carrot to make their mule go forward in yeah. a way. It's that way with the the. Um, with uh, the uh, uh, the servants and like Guillermo, and it's kind of a weird. Well, it's always the well. I'll, I'll eventually make you a vampire. It's a class. That's, struggle. that's the goal. Yeah. yeah, it's class struggle because I feel like it's definitely it's that it's that boss that says, "Oh, if you do this, I'll give you that promotion." Kind of like you're just kind of baiting them to essentially do what you want them to do. Right. Uh, what I found very interesting about Guillermo's journey through this season was that they tease it so many times in the first season where he's just so frustrated that he's going to finally crack and leave. And then in this season he does. And there's this kind of like on again, off again, sort of relationship that he has with Nandor. Yeah. And you know, and then it kind of comes to a head where he, you know, we have like, um, him completely, completely leave and you know they're barely getting by without him and I think they're kind of realizing oh geez like he did a lot you know he cleaned up after us and everything and then he literally ends up you know saving their lives but in 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 doing so he has to reveal his obvious you know talent for killing vampires and he kills a ton of vampires in doing so so you know it really 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 like brings 
his conflict to the forefront and and now it's you know has to be recognized by the vampires who are <laughs> I love that they're so like uh, he he they're they're so unattentive to him he's really like that kind of character that's like you guys i'm right here you know that that's a very much a comedy trope too where like you know these he's such a forgettable sort of uh person to them that now you know like he he can't be denied they they have to you know address things with him and, and i he, so, and like the they are odd thing I kind of noticed to kind of compare it to is I know it's a lot of TV shows where like the one character struggling in essentially his coming out uh, like a story arc. Uh, this one kind of plays that up where he's kind of like hiding his true feelings and is like really the self he wants to show, but he's afraid to. It kind of play with that kind of trope that we see in our TV shows. Not to say well, that like the character is inherently like, um, like a homosexual, but they kind of played at that sense of like, they want to uh, open up to them. They want to come out to them, but they don't know how to. Well, it, it's a thing where he's, he's wrestling with being who he was born to be, who he really is. And he's wrestling with how that conflicts with this thing that he's always wanted. So it's kind of like, you know, the, the struggle of who you are, what your natural, you know, predisposition is versus what you desire in life. And it's, it's very, very interesting. And I think in doing so though, they, why, why there was such great character development for the Guillermo character, because he's, we see that he's mainly a pushover in season one. Like there's a few times where he lashes out, but he's largely a, you know, a doormat to Nandor and the other vampires where he finally kind of starts like gaining some confidence and, you know, standing up for himself. But that, you know, that, that makes the conflict even, even more palpable. Um, but it, it makes for, you know, kind of interesting, intriguing uh, writing in terms of the story arc. The over the overarching story arc. So let's talk about cameos. Just this show's kind of now like you know there there's certain there's certain shows where they kind of become known for oh you know cameo show like if you're like Simpsons for instance like you know it's it's kind of like a thing where now it's like cool like hey if you if you get on the Simpsons it's you know a really really cool thing and i feel like this show's kind of becoming that where it's they they did such a good job with the cameos in season 1 that people want to be on this show and that they can kind of do like wishless cameos like a Mark Hamill mm. so let's talk about some of our our favorite cameos from this season. I think the major ones were uh, Benedict Wong played um, the necromancer Wallace. You have Haley Joel Osment was Topher, the uh, familiar that gets turned <laughs> into a zombie. Uh, you have the return of Nick Kroll's character, Simon the Devious. Uh, Jim the Vampire, played by Mark Hamill. 
And then you've got, um, and what I'm assuming is going to be his, his, his last outing is Vladislav the, the poker, uh, Jermaine Clement. Those are kind of the, the, the bigger ones. Um, out of those, which, which kind of tickled your fancy? Well, of course, all of them did for different reasons, but I would definitely say, as, as, a, as a very biased fanboy, I would definitely say my favorites were, like, uh, definitely, it's a, it's a hard tie between, because I had to reflect on this, I'm like, there's my favorite one, and then there's one I want to see more of, like, where I feel like... Let's hear, I about, could, the, let's hear about those. So, yeah, so I had two. Of course, my favorite's Mark Hamill, because we're biased nerds, we all admit it. Um, and that was, that was my favorite too. And, I, and I'll say why once you're finished. But my favorite one, because I want to see more of that character, not to say I don't want to see more of Mark Hamill, but we've kind of, he's kind of established his arc already, unless there's another conflict that he can establish with Laszlo, but that's already kind of ended. And um, I could see more from Ben Guang uh, his, as a necromancer. Cause I feel like that character I could see a lot more to come from because they established him not only as a necromancer, but someone who's a salesman, very uh, conniving, very like uh, sleazy. He has a backstory with Nadia that they're they're close. So yeah. and so I think that one's a lot more rife. And not to say that Benigwan can't become a more A-list actor or even like more prominent actor, but I feel like he's in that spot where he's known but not known to where he could come back for more potentially. Because that usually is an issue in a lot of other shows, like with, say, uh, Chris Pratt and Parks and Rec, where they get, become so famous, they almost struggle to balance both, or even with Benedict Cumberbatch and Sherlock. I feel like Benedict Wong, I could potentially see him coming back. That's, and of yeah, course, possibly. And, and I was looking into, out of curiosity, uh, if the showrunners had a favorites that they weren't able to get it. And that one was kind of fun, because... I noticed a lot of it was based around like they almost wanted to get more illusion cameos that referred to like actors who played vampires in the past. Like right. they're per of course their dream list that I doubt they'll ever would get would be like Brad Pitt because he was in or Tom Cruise because they were in um di- uh um oh my god, I said Diaries of Vampire. That's a different show. It's um the Oh my God! What's the Tom Cruise Brad Pitt vampire movie from the nineties? Interview with the vampire. Thank you. I almost said Diary of the Vampire, but I said Interview with the Vampire. They wanted to get them. They also wanted to get like, uh, like Kate Blanchett, Antonio Banderas, like ones that haven't or haven't necessarily played vampires. But Antonio Banderas would be great, just because like if if they could somehow secure the rights to a character that's like derivative of his character from interview with the vampire because Guillermo's like, like he talks in the first season about how like, um, the, uh, Armand character from, from, uh, that movie that Banderas played was kind of like his reason for wanting to become a vampire. Oh, that would be, Oh, well, amazing. And it is tricky because of course they wouldn't be able to directly reference it. Cause that's how they got away with it in season one where they had all these actors play a vampire, like with Wesley Snipes. They never right. said he was... Uh, they just said he's a daywalker. Yeah. They 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 had um, they had Danny Trejo, even though he had played a vampire in Dust Till Dawn, they didn't reference his character in Dust Till Dawn. Yeah. They showed Tilda Swinton, who was in uh, uh, Lover's... Uh, uh, 
Lovers Never Die, I believe, the Jim Jarmusch movie, um, where they they reference her as the vampire, but they don't really say who her character is. So I feel like there is some wiggle room where so they can... maybe allude. the way they could do it is that he's very much like an Armand-esque character. And you could even like, you could even, oh dude, you could lean heavy into it and... And have it be a thing more like he reminds Guillermo of, of Armand and like so he's kind of like, you know, if Ar- Armand in the in the real world, that could be kind of fun. Yeah. And they could just literally call him like Brad or Antonio, like how they did in season one with the council where they just called. Right. Everybody their f- real first name. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing I heard that they were kind of joking about that might be kind of fun is that if they did a so another person I forgot that to mention in terms of cameos uh, Craig Robinson was the leader of like the vampire hunters but they they uh, the cast did this like watch along thing just recently on IGN and they were talking about how they would. They thought it would be fun if they introduce very much like the Vampire Council. If there was like a Vampire Hunter Council, and that you got people that played like Van Helsing s characters, like a Hugh Jackman, and you know, so same sort of thing. Um, and but I, I don't know. That might be kind of difficult to I pull off. But they could do a lot more like Buffy Vampire Slayer references. Possibly. Well, no. So that was the other thing. Is like yeah, they, like get Sarah Michelle Geller to. To get uh, to be a guest on it too, you know that is rife. I like that approach a lot because that is rife of material. Like they could get like, like I'm trying to think. Like I doubt they could get like Anthony Hopkins who played. So they mentioned him too. Yeah, but like there's so many actors who have played Helsing or at least a character in the previous Bram Stoker movie adaptations or Monster Hunters in general. Right. Oh man, I'm just trying to remember. I'm actually looking up right now who's played Ben Helsing in the past. Um, that would be a fun approach. While you're doing that, I I have to agree with you. I think that Mark Hamill playing Jim was fantastic, and it just goes to show that like he's such I I think an underrated actor. I, you know, obviously he he gets credit because like. You know, as nerds, we all love him, you know, between his roles as the Joker and Luke Skywalker. But I think his range is ridiculous. If you look at, like, some of these kind of minor roles that he's done like this, and you compare that to, like, this is the voice of the Joker, and this is Luke fucking Skywalker. Like, he can do anything. He's done some very strange roles, and he, you know, he can kind of adapt and you know like he's obviously very good at comedy so i I just love mark hamill and that (laughs) that character was so ridiculous like how you know uh laszlo could just like apply like a very like rudimentary disguise where he doesn't look any different and he he cannot feel just the just the toothpick and he cannot figure out who he is Oh my gosh, I, I I loved it, and uh, and like their whole their whole story, and the fact that it's just like, um, unpaid rent is like why he has like 
revenge on his mind is just so silly. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, Benedict Wong was great. I, I loved Haley Joel Osment in it too. Obviously, I, I don't see him coming back. Um, but Benedict Wong, Wong was such weird casting. And his characterization was, you know, really interesting and strange because now, like, you know, he's we know him from, you know, Doctor Strange in the MCU. And so this was just like a very weird, like weirdo scam artist charlatan character that was just he's just sleazy. And it was a lot of fun. I think the one thing that that uh, Whitney the Shadows is doing that's very smart, and I would definitely say is a lot more like uh, contemporary to now, is the fact that, like, even though, like, we see these like stand-in tropes of vampire or necromancer or werewolf, he they aren't like even though they're European in origin, he's not restricting to just generic uh, white cis men. Like, he's kind of there. I would say there's so much diverse casting in Woden the Shadows. And I think that's another like up that the show has is it really kind of, they're reflecting a mythological universe by, in the sense of what's uh, contemporary of today's uh, like world. And that is diverse. And so I think that's a, and I think it's smart casting because of course, like not to say that they only cast him because he's Asian, but he just happens to be just like uh, this really good actor among other things. Like they aren't, trying to follow the generic European white trope that these right. like uh, monsters have origins from. I think that's very like uh, very uh, definitely progressive in a sense. Well, speaking of progressive, one thing that they also, they, they introduced this in the first season, but then they really, really strike at home with this interesting moment. Um, I love that they introduced that, it seems like most vampires, but specifically these vampires, are very, are very f- um, sexually fluid with their orientation, oh. and <laughs> like, cause I love that after the witch episode, like both Nandor and L- Laszlo thinking they they were going to be. Completely, uh, you know, what's what's a good way to describe this? Uh, robbed of their semen, you know, they're 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 in need of uh, you know some release, so they decide to have sex with each other. <laughs> I love that. I'm like, dude, ancient vampires are more woke than uh, you know most, you know most most uh, humans that have not been around nearly as as long. And yeah, I, they, I love that their their ideas uh, on sexuality are completely fluid and you know not binary at all. I I I, I uh, well they kind of like like I said they introduced that in like kind of the orgy episode in the in the first season where yes. you know sexually like they're they're not they're not as uh, as as prudish and as puritanical as as humans are. And it's definitely consistent with the vampire mythos because the vampire mythos inherently is kind of uh, like a lot of monster stories have kind of these moral tales to them, like the extreme moral tales where like, like for instance, uh, like the werewolf represents like 
containing your violent urges, while the vampire is more uh, a uh, containing your sexual urges. Hence, why we always see like Dracula as the seducing man of all the innocent women. But like, I'm with you there. It's definitely I, I kind of like how they're kind of uh, rolling with that and and not having the vampires confine themselves to the binary standards that are in uh, gender and sexuality. And I feel like I kind of want them to explore that more, not necessarily in the sense of like the like orgy polyamorous open relationship standards, but it would be kind of interesting to see them more explores other different types of, uh, uh, on the spectrum of sexuality and gender would be kind of fascinating. Well, we've seen exploration of also like gender roles just in, you know, the Nadia and Laszlo characters being a married couple, because obviously like their relationship is very much a, fluid and open relationship in not only their gender roles but their sexuality as well um you know because it's they kind of even revisit it in this season too where you know Nadja has frequently taken uh Gregor her human lover in all of his yeah many many times you know and and she's been married to Laszlo for for so 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 long and then we you know find out that every time this guy dies it's because uh Laszlo kills him so but you know they're such a beautiful couple like they they love each other um but clearly like they've been together for so long that they've learned that some kind of openness and everything so like it's a very like modern sort of take on a a married couple too so I, I enjoy that as well, um, just because it kind of shows that you know they have a very, a very uh, progressive and kind of outside of the box way of like looking at you know um, at 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 the world and you know things that could get very very boring if you can't die, <laughs> like like oh, yeah, marriage and sex, you know. Yeah, I would say, like, if you knew you were going to be immortal and live forever, you kind of almost wouldn't, like, oh, what the heck, I'll try everything. I'll, like, explore, I'll try, like, because, like, I feel like that definitely, yeah, because it's sort of, like, might as well, because you're going to live forever. You have nothing to lose, yeah. yeah. So, what was your favorite episode or moment from this season? Jeez, well, I had to, I had to, re, I had to kind of follow a few recaps, because... Overall, like out of the 10 episodes, I definitely had kind of a range of, I had like great moments in so-so episodes or great world building in great episodes or so-so episodes. There's kind of a range of really ones I felt connected with. Uh, in terms of my favorite, like I would say the one that I'm like, I want to rewatch that one. Um, of course I'll rewatch every episode in general, but because they're just so short, you can kind of like just cherry pick and binge them all you want but definitely i would say my favorite episodes were um of course there was uh on the run uh because i would say they came so close to essentially being a weird disney channel movie with its uh concept of just a vampire decides to like blend in with humans by opening a bar and helping the, the girl volleyball team win the championship uh, I, that's just such an absurd, like over the top, a plot that only this show could do, and um, and ugh. and my other favorite episode is definitely uh, 
it's a split between the Kirsten Collins promotion because those definitely riff on these fictional mythological characters reacting or uh, in a way kind of exploring these kind of common things in our in human society that we either take for granted or kind of take with a grain of salt, which is, of course, like uh, workplace uh, promotions and the weird sense of uh, like um, uh, spam mail. So I feel like right. those were fun because you see these like non-human characters react differently than human characters in these scenarios. And what I liked most about uh, the, the uh, on the run episode specifically is the fact that like it it was I would say these three episodes that I mentioned were spotlight episodes where they were more like we got more of those characters like uh, background through them reacting in this scenario. Absolutely, and, and I think that was where, like we said earlier, it's where this this season shines more. Is these are like highlights and spotlights. Uh, that way, everyone gets a moment. Agreed. So for me, I I think the whole on the run episode was just. I think it's going to go down as like one of like the the best episodes they've done. It's in my top between- five. It's on top three. Certainly, one two. Certainly, between the Mark Hamill cameo and dude, the Jackie Daytona character was comedy gold. Comedy gold. I how it's like. I love that it is enough of a different persona that he's believable as just this kind of like interesting small town bartender that clearly it just kind of has a heart of gold, but then it's, it's barely an extension of Laszlo. I, I, I just, I love that kind of juxtaposition and I, I, I don't know. I, it's, it's also just, I love that. Like it was clearly something he's used before. It was clearly thought very well thought out by him. I, I don't know. I, and I just liked how, how it was so isolated and weird that, you know, like like you said, the premise of it was so strange that, you know, he's, he's a, he's a fan of like the local, like high school volleyball team. <laughs> Dude, it's just, it was so bizarre, so bizarre, but I, I absolutely loved it. Um, I suppose like in terms of moments, I, I like I we were talking about earlier, I really liked the Collins promotion episode too, because I, I, that was something I wanted to see. Like, what kind of really is the limits of this guy's power? What, you know, what's really, what, you know, what is he all about? So, yeah, I, th- I think those were, were, were kind of my highlights for sure. One thing I kind of was noticing, like, uh, when I was watching season two, there was this, uh, there's this one YouTube channel that I like following and it talks about like literary tropes and it talked about the whole theme and the history of the Byronic hero. Byronic referring to Lord Byron, uh, who kind of in a weird way like follows uh, the same pathway as like Dracula, because a lot of people, uh, especially in movies, have based the whole sexual, the, the shocking sexual exploits of Dracula uh, based on the shocking sexual exploits of Lord Byron. Uh, so it's kind of because the whole uh, origins of it in like literary and film is like the whole character is literally defined by hit the shock value and the sexual uh, value of the character. 
And we said that kind of illusion in other characters, but like Laszlo is kind of a riff on that because literally the man is all like shock and sexual awe. Uh, and, right. and like, and especially his like flowing hair and like beautiful cloak. And he's just off on a merry adventure with my beautiful woman, my wife, Nadja. Like it, it's kind of like in, in the literary sense in, in uh, its themes, it, it's kind of like, I like those subtle illusions that kind of, for someone like me who like likes to follow a lot of like literature history, it was kind of a nice little like wink. Well, in terms of like inspiration too, like clearly like the Nandor character is a riff off of Vlad the Impaler, which all you know, Vladislav from the the movies was was a riff off of that. Um, but the the Nandor character is kind of like an amalgamation of Vladislav from the movies and Taika Waititi's character, where he's like old world vampire like a Vladislav, you know, that was like a ruthless, ruthless person, you know, and, and way back in the day. But then he's obviously like, he's still like very kind of, um, kind of like a, a, an, a, an early 1900s dandy as well. <laughs> like, uh, Taika Waititi is where he's like, he's very, you know, kind of, prim and proper and, and, and a little, you know, a little, uh, um, whiny and a little, a little innocent for, you know, how much of a, a warlord he, you know, s- says he was. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I love, I love that, uh, that exploration of, you know, kind of inspiration as well. So let's, transition into what you thought of the season as a whole and how do you think it stacked up against season one I'm looking here at um, the ratings and it did alright but as a whole like on average the ratings for season one were a, a little stronger like there was, there was, uh, they broke a million viewers for more episodes of season one than they did in season two. Yeah, I'm definitely curious about the numbers in like two categories. There's like the whole like who watched it on FX when it came out, and those who's watched it in their own free time on Hulu. So I'm kind of, I feel like right. The season two did come out during COVID quarantine, where most people probably jumped on streaming services like immediately. So I'm kind of curious to know what those numbers are as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, the critical response, it has a 100% approval rating um, on Rotten Tomatoes based on 24 different reviews with an average rating of 8.5 out of 10, uh, which is actually a higher average rating than season one got. Season one was like so, 90 I think out of 100 like versus 100. 94% based on 69 reviews with an average rating of 7.8 uh, out of 10. Yeah. I think definitely this show uh, in season two highlights more because it really does a good job in being its own thing more than season one did. Season one definitely had to, I would say to please the original fandom of the movie while trying to find its footing. And I think season two, it found its footing. I agree with that. I, I think that, you know, they 
They had a successful season one, so now they can really push things in season two and explore, you know, some things that they probably didn't have time for in season one or they thought, oh, geez, like, you know, can we really get away with doing a whole episode about Colin? You know, and and clearly they figured out, okay, yeah, no, like, everybody loves this guy. This character's great. Let's do a Colin episode. And they... I agree with you. They definitely got, like, they had more room to play. And in terms of how it stacks up, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't necessarily think it was better or worse. I, I, I thought the first season was amazing, and I thought they just kind of, like, continued on that, like, steady trajectory. And they didn't really lose a step, uh, you know, but it, it the first season was so strong that I think it would have been very difficult to have this like be far and away like oh my gosh it's so much better than the first season because they they had you know a really strong outing from the get-go so yeah i think it stacks up very evenly i i was i was impressed that i you know like we said earlier the inclusion of more world building and the introduction of kind of more monsters and everything i think it just makes it for uh more of a fun show and then also it gives a little more um shelf life because i don't as much as i love the source material that's just a one you know that's just a one-off movie and i think adapting that into a an episodic television show even if it's only you know 10 episodes a season if it's purely just about a group of vampires living together that's going to run its course quick so when they introduce like these different types of vampires and this kind of vampire underworld and the fact that you know not only are there vampires but you know we have werewolves there's necromancers there's zombies there's ghosts it's it gives it a, a you know more room to to breathe and can kind of have that core story be that you know the the vampires that live together and they're you know they're familiar um and kind of how that's a conflict all the while while keeping things interesting because you're having these kind of one-off episodes that um you know are introducing different things into this universe so, do you have any criticisms from this season? Um, I would say my my criticisms would be more in the. I would say more I, my least favorite interactions might have been I kind of over the Nick Kroll character personally. Uh, I think the whole notion of a character who's kind of a cocky douche is a very shallow, limited character. Hence, why I think. Hence, why I don't think the uh, um, the uh, the Haley Joel Osment character really had much of a lifespan because that was his riff was he just kind of a kind of a little bit uh, arrogant. Uh, I feel like that kind of trope itself has kind of a a target sign for this has a very like short shelf life. Uh, and I would say that episode of the return might have been my least favorite episode where like, yes, we got to see like Guillermo like really get his full like vampire killer on, but I just didn't really find 
that character returned really that like um, inspiring or really that like exciting. Uh, so that would definitely be my litmus test reaction. Uh, but like, because I, I think we've already established the social clicks. So I think now is more time to explore that in other realms, which they did with um, with like the other like uh, uh, um, the influencer vampire that you mentioned earlier as kind yeah. of like uh, Aquafina-esque in her kind of comedic delivery, um, yeah. which, which I think that's where the show is going to get better is where they're kind of doing this juxtaposition of like like past and present um, like uh, comedians in these kind of weird garbs that are vampire uh, genre. So I would definitely say its strengths were its cameos and its weaknesses were its characters that I feel like they're realizing might have had a shorter shelf life than most. Um, another criticism would be um, I don't know, I'm kind of I think definitely the returning of certain characters, because this is kind of a way to see how do we react to Gregor coming back a second time, how to react to um, uh, Simon coming back a second time. Uh, so I think now is where they're realizing which is going to work and not work. And I would say not that I wouldn't be opposed to seeing Simon or Gregor come back again, but I feel like I want to know, like, really, what can they do to make them stand out more uh, to justify their return? Right. So for me, I, I have only one criticism and it's not so much what they did. It's what they didn't do. And I, I don't know, maybe there was like a scheduling reason for this. I thought it was such a drop of the ball that the um, Jenna character played by Beanie Feldstein was not brought back because they there was so much setup of like they had a whole episode, you know, with like. Well, she was in a few episodes the last season, but they had a whole episode of kind of like her, you know, Nadia teaching her how to become a vampire. And then they introduced this concept of like, you know, she's a terrible vampire. Well, she might be a terrible vampire in every other thing, but she can, you know, turn herself invisible. So she's like very, very powerful. So it's, you know, we introduced this like new power that we've never seen any other vampire do in this show. And... It's, you know, they kind of leave us thinking, wow, okay, so she's a young vampire, but she's got this crazy power. Like, what could she really, 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 truly become? And there was, they also left on the table that there was clearly some jealousy there between um, between Guillermo and her. And to me, that was just wildly unresolved. Like, there was more to tell there. Like, what what became of her? And I, I don't know. I don't know if it's because, you know, she kind of like her career just right when she did this first season, she blew up and maybe there was scheduling issues or, you know, this is kind of small potatoes for her now, which I don't think it's that because there's some huge stars that have done cameos in it. So I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Um, but if the producers had any sort of control over that. And maybe this, that was something that they're like, ah, we're going to maybe address later on. I think that was a mistake because yeah, you, it was enough of a thing that was like kind of a, a big thread, a big storyline thread in the first season 
to just completely, you know, ignore it for whatever reason. Maybe it was out of their control. I feel like they needed to write in something that like is mentioning Jenna or or, or something. Like she just didn't exist after that. I, I didn't I didn't like that. I thought that was a drop of the ball. And um, if it was me, if you have the money to get like all those people. <laughs> in that first season and then still some like really seriously big names in this one. You know, I don't know if it was a money thing. I I would have been over backwards or I I don't know. It's hard to say what, what it was. I actually tried to find if there was any sort of articles like addressing that. And I I couldn't find anything that was like clear one way or the other as to why she wasn't in this season. But that was my only um, criticism. And, And like I said, it might, it might have been completely out of everyone's control, but I I'm definitely with you on possibly on that one. But uh, what was your point you wanted to finish? I, I just think that there's still ways that you can, as a writer, that you can just not completely leave the audience hanging. That, that they could have, you know, done a little tease where they didn't necessarily have to have Beanie Feldstein in the ep, you know in one of the episodes. Where they, they they mention her, and they kind of mentioned her, but in a really weird like secondhand way. Because if you'll remember, one of the vampire hunters in Guillermo's group is her roommate, mm-hmm. and that was the only like mention of her. And but I would have you know that was basically it. I think that was an opportunity to go. Okay, well, you know the the roommate kind of gives us some more like well okay so yeah so once she became a vampire you know give us what's been going on with her like that would I think be enough to like satiate everybody and you know and maybe write something in is like you know she she went off went off on this this trip to find herself or I don't know something that was that was my beef oh yeah no I was curious too and. I'm hopeful that because establishing the roommate character in season two, again, that it might mean there's maybe more like potential in season three. But when I was looking up what uh, Beanie uh, Feldstein was doing, it looks like that besides the typical cameos in like Grey's Anatomy and The Simpsons, the the usual like up and comer, new hot actor, actress, like list of cameos to do is apparently in uh, season three of American Crime Story, kind of like when they had it for OJ and like uh, and uh, the murder of uh, that fashion designer, she apparently is in season three of American Crime Story impeachment about the Bill Clinton impeachment, where she plays Monica Lewinsky. I didn't. I knew that they were going to do that. I didn't know she was cast in that. Oh yeah, no, and they finished filming, so I'm wondering maybe that could have been the reason. But no, it looks like yeah, Clive Owen plays Bill Clinton. And Monica Lewis is played by Bernie Feldstein. And it looks like she just, they're doing post-production of a movie based on this Tony Award-winning play, which was a Pulitzer finalist called The Humans, which was on Broadway. Uh, Wait, it's a good play. And hold then, on. Not to get too far out of the way, it's Clive Owen is playing Bill Clinton? Yeah. Hmm. I don't if know you, how I feel about that, but okay. If you look at a side-by-side photo, they have a very similar kind of uh, droopy face now. And that knows. Um, it'll be interesting to see how he does uh, uh, the American accent, which I know he's done before. But Not only a- American accent, Arkansas accent. And like he's got a very distinct Arkansas accent, and I, and I feel like most people don't do him correctly. If if 
yeah, the like in, in, impressions of him. Bill Clinton's out of my life. And that's but, like, that's kind of- but he has one of those voices that's like it's so easy to cross into a caricature, which is like perfect for like an SNL, but like a serious series like about like a crime drama uh, i don't know that, it, mm. they got a weird in season one with a cast of cuba gooding jr's oj and they look nothing alike so i'm kind of curious to know like maybe they're not fully caring of the looks or accent but more the embodiment of the character they're playing that's alluding to it i don't know we'll see right and then yeah. he's in the new richard linkletter movie uh coming up uh, a musical merrily we roll along so there's a very what you're saying is there's a very high probability that she was too busy to do this. That's my theory, and I'm hoping now that there's a similar reaction to you and me when we want more of her that they'll probably try to put more effort into getting her into season three. And so I think that's my big hope, because uh, I'm with you there. I kind of want to still want to see her become mad with power and become like a vampire dictator uh, in a way where she's just like not nomming on humans left and right they're both becoming stronger but oppositions uh where i want to see kind of like this toe-to-toe of guillermo in his full vampire killer powers have become tenfold and then bernie feldstein as her vampire powers become tenfold and they just do a face-off so i'm uh trying a different search let's see here Okay, so this, I don't know how reputable this site is, but I found something here where basically it was as vague as this, that she would not be returning to the second season due to film commitments. And then uh, Jermaine Clement was, he was quoted as saying he found that disappointing because uh, she was planned to be a big character. That bums me out even more. I know. That's uh. why I'm really, I'm really hoping that this kind of, uh, like, there'll definitely hopefully be a lot of contract uh, negotiations or even more, like, pay her more money incentives to kind of get her to come back. Because uh, I'm with you there. She, I, I feel like there was definitely a void missing without her in season two. That was kind of left open in season one. Well, they were. It was, you know, and we'll talk about this. Um, it's renewed for season three, so maybe, uh, maybe that's when they'll do it. Because uh, I, I think it's it's possible to, you know, still pick up that story, but that's it's a little disappointing, and it, it, it might lose some steam because by you know waiting a whole entire season in between so i I guess we'll see so speaking of you know that they uh picked up for a third season so it's beneficial they were uh fx ordered a a third season for the show and but with that announcement came the announcement that uh jermaine clement the showrunner he is not going to be uh returning to the writing staff and he purposely wrote the ending to season two as a challenge for the writing staff to figure out. Um, and basically that season two ends with, I mentioned it before the vampire council is going to kill our, our, you know, vampire friends and 
Guillermo swoops in and has to reveal himself as a natural born vampire killer to save them. And that's kind of leaves us on a cliffhanger. And, uh, so I want to ask you, do you think that the show is going to suffer with him leaving? And how do you see that season finale being resolved moving forward? Because it is, he definitely, I think his quote was that he wrote them, wrote their backs against a wall or something to that effect. And I would tend to, uh, to agree with that. That is going to be that. And I think we talked about this in, in quarantine watch list that is either going to kill that show <laughs> or make it stronger because I think they had to do it, but Ooh, it's going to be hard to write what the follow-up is to that. It's, it's basically doing more so than what season two had to do, which is had it be on its own feet. First, it was how to be its own feet to separate itself from the movie, and now it's how to have its own legging without the people who started it from the get-go. Because this type of exercise of putting them in a corner and seeing how they get out is either a going to it's going to do one of two things. It's a very binary situation in my mind, where it's either going to make them flourish. It's like letting go of the uh, of like the pedals on their bicycle, or the 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 um the um letting go of the training wheels. Sure so to speak, um, or to, where they can flourish or they can crash and burn. So it's like, can they get along without their papa, Jermaine Clements, in their corner rooting them on? Or Jermaine Clements is like, fuck this shit, I'm out, drops Mike into the gears and let things clog up. So it's kind of like what I said earlier, it's like that uh, sense of creating a form of restricted uh, creativity to flourish within confines. And in this case, instead of there being kind of a uh, character confine, a scenario confine, this confine is the fact that how the, he kind of put us in this corner, how are we going to get out of it? And this is literally going to be on pins and needles for me because it, it either is, like you said, going to be full of rife with potential and they'll be putting in this great creative little foray to break out or they're going to flounder because they don't know how to get out. But the fact that their shoulders aren't around there really is the sky's kind of the limit in that sense so i feel like there's a lot of potential of how they could get out of it but we'll see in how well it's received yeah it, it's an it's i do think it will be a make or break sort of situation with this show where it, they might not be able to come back from that and i you know i mean he is such an important figure uh, uh like of this you know the the universe that is that has been established that is what we do in the shadows however though and and this isn't knocking him as a creative force um behind this and you know it sounds like he was in the writer's room you know in terms of like the overarching uh story but in terms of episode specific writing credits and directing he only directed and wrote one episode this whole entire season and I, I'm i not going to say one or the other whether I thought this was the weakest but you said it you felt like it was he wrote and directed The Return Um, and oh excuse me no he did direct Colin's promotion as well but so the one that he did a solo writing venture on was The Return though Um, I don't necessarily think that's like evidence that his stuff was the weakest but I think it's evidence that like 
there can still be some really great content that is written and directed by other people. Oh yeah. Um, Yana, uh, Gorsi, I can't say that name. Gors, Gorskaya. I think that's how you say that. Uh, Russian American, um, film editor. I guess this was her first venture into directing. She directed, uh, the on the run episode. And then that, um, that weird like Nadja and uh, Laszlo are in a band episode. Remember that? Where they oh, like yeah. re- revive they their 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 yeah, duo. Yeah, and Kokomo. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then it, and and Kyle Newichek from uh, Workaholics fame. He directed a lot of the episodes. He directed more episodes this uh, season than anyone else that he directed. The first three episodes and then the last two. So I think that they're in good hands. Oh, yeah. And that they'll probably find their way out of that writing box that Clement put them in. Um, and I think that it isn't necessarily a. Hmm a nail in the coffin that he's leaving. Oh, uh, that, no pun intended. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I think it remains to be seen. Um, sometimes when a figurehead behind a show leaves, oof, it can kill it. So I think it depends on kind of who's going to pick up the reins as kind of the, the main yeah. showrunner. It's definitely you looked at the. It's kind of like what we did with Game of Thrones, where we kind of, by you looking up the writer directors per each episode leading up to the final season or the next season, it's almost a predictor of where is the strength uh, at. Well, Uh, that's a fun little exercise that I never really uh, considered when I was recapping the episodes. Well, and I think it's encouraging that, like, because I'm looking back on on season one and. Jermaine Clement and Taika Waititi were way more involved in terms of writing and directing in season one than it appears that they were in season two. Um, Like in season one, Taika Waititi directed three episodes. Jermaine Clement directed two or three, three. Yeah. Um, And, Jermaine Clement wrote about half of the episodes. So it sounds like he was dipping more into like traditional showrunner territory for season two, where he's kind of like steering the ship. So maybe if somebody just kind of steps up and is adopts that role, they know that they have a writing team that can still write good content that, that makes sense. So I still have high hopes for it. And at this point, other than the Beanie Feldstein character, it doesn't sound like any of the the main cast are going to leave anytime soon from the interviews that I've heard from them. What I'm curious is, and I hadn't double checked unless you heard it, but like, even though Jermaine Clemens is gone as showrunner writer, do you think that will still mean that he will no longer have his cameo appearance like in previous seasons with Taika? Because I know Taika couldn't be in season two because he was just too busy. 
as the, he uh, said that um that the apparently him as Vladislav in that was like a last minute deal. They're just like kind of just decided on the fly to do it, and he he kind of said that he he that it, that'll probably be the only time he ever does it. Yeah, I definitely was kind of surprised by it because not that his character isn't fun, but they're all sort of a, a triad, all three of them from the first movie. So it's odd to see one of them do a one-off. Uh, not to say that he isn't important on the council, but you would have thought like a, a head honcho leader of the council would have been like Tilda Swinton or someone else to have that reprisal of the stand, of the stand-in for it. But which I makes mean- why? In terms of in terms of like scheduling and yeah. financially, this was an an easy one to knock out of the park. Though. I can and it makes so much more sense because I was like wondering why. I mean, I'm glad he's back, but why specifically him? But I feel like that makes total sense. Right. So I was reading an article today that I I just want to briefly. We're kind of winding down here, but I really want to bring this up. So in this kind of watch along thing that some of the cast members did the uh, actors that play uh, Guillermo and Nandor um, Kevin Novak and uh, Harvey Gillian they were saying they were expressing a desire to have an episode or kind of have at least be a thread of like the next season the origin story of not the specific characters of Nandor and Guillermo, but how they met and how Guillermo, be, you know, came into service of Nandor. So, I want to ask you, like, a, would that interest you? And and that kind of thinking, would you want to see, you know, a more in-depth origin story on the other characters? I think so, because, like, we've already had, like, spotlight episodes in season two to where, and they've already kind of established how they do their cutaways to our flashback, which is, like, they'll, like, Photoshop some old document or, or like, a newspaper clipping or old, or do something in post to make it look like an old footage from, like, uh, like from the beginning of the 20th century, which makes, which is fun, but I'm kind of, like, thinking they've never really explored the whole notion of a flashback episode. They've always done more cutaways as like, uh, like one-off gags. So it would be very interesting to see like, will they do more origin stories per character in season three? And how would that relate to the ongoing arc? So I think that has some potential and I would say I'm definitely intrigued. Cause like- Go on. Cause like I, However, as I'm saying this, I'm also thinking of like, will I get kind of annoyed by if the whole episode is done in kind of like this, like, uh, like if, oh, in the kind of like this, um, not that they, not that they haven't really, not that they would, but would I get annoyed if they do it in kind of a black and white, scratchy look? But that would be more tune if Nadja and Laszlo met versus like Guillermo and Mendor could have met in like, couple of years ago i don't know i feel like i'm kind of curious to know how would they distinct the flashback from the contemporary uh, uh edits so i i mentioned this earlier when we were talking about how they are using kind of little little bits here and there of just kind of in reference to backstory and everything 
when I heard that, I was like, at first I thought, oh, that's cool. And then I thought, hmm, that compromises the integrity of the show, though, as a mockumentary. And I think that, so using the example of The Office that you did earlier, I'm going to use it for, for this as well. The Office was really, really, really smart in the way that they kept the forward trajectory of, okay, we're going to plop you in right here on these people's lives. You're only going to learn about their, their backstories through what is currently happening and what is going to happen. It's all referential. We don't, you know, we didn't need to go have some, cause then it's like, then you have to explain it. Like where it's like, okay, well, how, how does this footage exist? Are we, you know, breaking the confines of that? This is a mockumentary and now it's just a, you know, genre wise. I don't know that. I think that's a good way to, to completely break the rules that they've established. And yeah. I personally, I am not a fan of when that happens. Um, like, so mockumentary is interesting where it became kind of like this cool sort of popular thing. And I have some shows and films do it better than others. I was going back and, and rewatching some of parks and recreation. And you know, I really liked that show when I first watched it and I kind of like hit a lull real quick with it. Like I, I, I still need to go back and give it another shot, but I was like, Ooh, this is definitely like, maybe this is only a show that's worth watching the one time because I couldn't help but go, they're completely like, even though it's established as this is a, a mockumentary, they're, they're breaking the rules left and right that, uh, of documentary. And I think it's inevitable that that'll happen a little bit, but the main reason why I wouldn't want a whole episode that's like flashbacks and all that kind of stuff is because then it's just, it's throwing, it's crumpling that up and throwing it out the window. Yeah. And, and they've kind of gotten around it by almost like it's done in voiceover or done in just sort of like a presentation of artifact. Uh, in like, I think the farthest flashback they ever done was in the seventies when like you met Nandor with his uh, first familiar. Like, I think that's really the farthest time jump they've done in terms of a well, flashback. It's still not a flashback though, because it, all it is is just referential. And yeah. if anything, they're doing a very like Ken Burns esque, you know, um, approach of like, okay, so here is an archival photo or an archival painting or like with Laszlo in his porn career, it's cutaways of him watching his movies. So it's still taking place in the parameters of this film crew. Yeah. Filming them. And I think to do it correctly and to to do it justice and have some integrity in, in the genre that they have selected I think that's how you I don't want to say have to do it because of course like whatever they can break the rules if they want but I think that is you're going to fast track the show to uh, its demise because once you start breaking the rules of your narrative as we've seen with any sort of <laughs> sh- <laughs> sh- <laughs> <Sorry>. exactly exactly <clears throat> you know or like 
lost. I mean, there's, there's so many examples of this where, you know, you start to veer off and, and, and you, and you break the rules and you break out of what you've established and that can go, you know, disastrously wrong. And then you can't quite find your way back. So that would be my main concern with this. And that's not to say that, like, I, I do want to know, you know, how the heck did Guillermo find, you know, Nandor? And but I, I think maybe it needs to be kind of a, a, a episode of them kind of referencing their story. Yeah. And but, we get and more is revealed uh, like through these like interviews and voiceovers and and kind of the way they've kind of done it. Because I. I I never really thought of it that way because we did talk about this in the first episode of uh, What We Do in the Shadows season one. Uh, we did it earlier this uh, summer where it talked about how they have to be consistent within the realms of the genre they're within. Yes. And so I never, and I kind of definitely forgot that. So I feel like I'm definitely will retract. Like, I feel like I have been using the word flashback in the wrong sense within the confines of uh, mockumentaries. So that's definitely a good point. Oh, I, uh, I knew I knew what you meant. I I was just, I think that that's in terms of if we're talking about like narrative theory and like genre theory, that flashback is more an appropriate term for if we are you know if you're thinking of it like in a literary sense where you are jumping back timelines yeah and in this sense it's more of an insert or a cutaway yeah and that's why i keep using the term like referential which is really without archival footage which wouldn't fit with this story that's the only way that you really can tell a story from a contemporary sense and then jump timelines to the past but yeah genre, I, genre theory is a conversation for another day it is you're right because people will break the rules they make in a lot of senses especially when they're put in corners so i'm very curious to see by how the writers will kind of be able to be consistent within these new corners they're put in So that brings me to my last question, and we'll wrap this up. Predictions for season three. We did that for season two, and it was kind of fun. So uh, do you have any any predictions? Oh, yeah, no. Uh, well, I have hopes and predictions. Uh, like kind of what I said earlier with Bernie Feldstein hopefully coming back. Because uh, I feel like there, as we learned season two, there is some potential for more interactions and comic potential with uh, characters returning. Some more so than others. And... I feel like the characters that highlight in season two have potential to be come back in season three. Uh, I still want an, an amazing standoff of where like both Guillermo and uh, Bernie Filson character have like become like more powerful than they ever expected and beyond anyone else. And they just go full on toe to toe vampire, vampire hunter, one off. I want that so bad. Cause I still, want, I still want her character to become like blood, blood uh, thirsty with power. Uh, and just like off one after the other after the other, where it becomes she's more of a threat to the vampire world. Uh, I kind of want that type of situation. Um, I, the vampire council approach 
I'm curious to see how that's going to be continued, especially because the showrunners are no longer going to be uh, involved. So I'm definitely assuming they'll impact their cameos, like in season one and two. So I'm expecting maybe more returns from, like, say, other like minor characters that were mentioned uh, outside of what we do in Opening the Shadows season one. Like, I mean, like uh, Dave Bautista maybe getting a little too famous for him to have a return. Um, you know, I, I don't know, man. He was pretty freaking famous when he was in that uh, in that first role. I know. I feel like in the end, like because TV is kind of in its new renaissance period with streaming, I feel like it's more of an allure for these big name actors because, I mean, none of us would have expected to see like Tilda Swinton, Dave Bautista and like... Evan uh, Rachel Wood. Like, they're huge the- stars. Yeah, so I feel like, especially because these showrunners are becoming more bigger and famous, that people want to work with them in any way possible. And I feel like this is a nice little vehicle for that collaboration to be had. Right. Uh, I, I would, another hope that I have for season three prediction would be uh, if they don't go with an approach of how they met, uh, it would be cool if they do kind of more uh, it'd be cool uh, to see the continuation of the Vampire Hunter Council, uh, Vampire Hunter Club, uh, because I feel like the Vampire Council has maybe hit a nice little lull period. So I feel like that room can be filled by more characters that are more human, uh, or like we said earlier in the previous episodes, like it would be uh, sorry the previous uh, like talk in the earlier question when it'd be cool if they explore more like other types of uh, mythology in the American sense of monsters. Yeah, I agree with you. I So that would be kind of a prediction that I would want and, and something I'd want to have happen would be the, you know, when that, that idea popped up in that article I was reading, I was like, ooh, that's a good one. I That's an interesting thing. And I, my prediction is that the vampires will be indebted to Guillermo for saving their lives, but then they're going to be conflicted because, like, he killed all those vampires. And I think it's going to be a thing of, like, hey, we're going to let this slide, but you, we have to part ways. And I think in that, he, his only choice is going to be to follow his destiny, which seems to be a vampire hunter. And I think the, the, the ultimate conflict that they need to be building to is that, like, he is going to be pushed with the conflict of like, should he and can he kill Nandor, Nadja and Laszlo? Um, and you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I personally wouldn't have, you know, written that to maybe be re, you know, resolved until about like season four maybe, but, that's, you know, that's what Jermaine Clement did. And um, because I think that it's going to be now writing that in. And I think that's that's got to be the obvious uh, resolution to it, because I, I don't think they can just go, OK, let's go back to all living in the house together. Um, and with that, I feel like that you you have a shorter shelf life of the show. But maybe I'm wrong. I, I you know, 
Um, I see that being a thing. Uh, I think other predictions. I'm going to say this is as the same as you. Not a, not a prediction. More of a hope um, that Beanie Feldstein's character makes a return. Because that was something I thought was sorely missing from this last season. And kind of what we mentioned with like the, you know, expanding the kind of creature feature sort of aspects of the show. I would love to see more of that. I would love to see the kind of mythos of like the monster creature sort of aspects of the show expand. And yeah, I think that more of Guillermo like training to be, uh, a vampire hunter and like kind of the vampire hunter subculture that, you know, we've seen the vampire subculture. I want to see the vampire hunter subculture yeah. more of that. We've only, we only got a little taste this season. And one thing I'm kind of realized I neglected to bring up is I would definitely like to see more of the sense of class struggle between the vampires and the familiars. Cause that's getting more expanded upon in season two. So I kind of would be curious if they ever create a character like, uh, a familiar who not necessarily will fill the void, like if Nandor needs a new familiar, if Guillermo runs off, or if like I would like a familiar that almost goes over the edge, like what Guillermo could have been, uh, like someone who almost kills their their master and forces themselves to become a vampire, like almost overcomes their master and says, "I'm going to force you to make me a vampire." Like I would like to or, see, or or maybe get so fed up that that's how they become a vampire hunter because you know that's not exactly Guillermo's trajectory it's almost that but he's kind of almost like predispositioned because of his bloodline to be a vampire hunter so maybe you know he meets this person along the way that like he can see himself in that like hey if I was pushed any further I would have chose to be this Yes, that 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 I would say that I think could be a more likely direction because we've I kind of feel like we've already I for, I'm totally forgetting the whole human world building sense in this universe the sense of how, how do humans play a role in the relationship with the vampires and the other monsters and it would be almost cool if there's like a weird like a revolution uh, or like a like a kind of like almost like the uh they create almost a form of uh union uh that's yeah well organized no longer has like uh that kind of weirdly reflects today's politics like uh especially during election season it'd be very interesting if there's almost like this uh uh like front runner of the like a form of like inspiring uh like human familiar who's everyone that that who could shake things up, but secretly is actually it's a puppet for like, hires to like almost like maintain control over the familiars, but give them the illusion that they have more power and more like uh, importance. Uh, yeah. kind of politics where businesses have essentially like puppet politicians. It would be kind of like, it'd be interesting if they play up that notion. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a fun concept too. Yeah. yeah. I think those would be good. No, I guess we'll have to wait now. They're they're saying that, you know, and I think this all probably depends on COVID, but the target date is fall of 2021. So we, we, have, a, we have a wait ahead of us. Yeah, and who knows? Maybe they could even do an episode about how the vampires are dealing with COVID. 
when all the humans are stuck inside all day. It would be, you know, no- I, th- I thought about that yeah. and I think that you're going to see COVID influence. Like when media gets going again and so much stuff, it's, yeah. and it's, it's, it's so much stuff. Like it's, it's inevitable, especially if it's anything that's going to be like in a contemporary setting. I think we're going to probably get sick of it. Um, yeah. It, it would get a little overwhelming if they directly influence versus indirectly. Like if they didn't like say an episode where the vampires realize that, Oh, we can't drink blood because everyone's sick for some reason. Oh no. How are we going to survive? <laughs> uh, because honestly, if like, if a virus can jump from human to from animal to human, what's the stop from going from human to non-humans? Uh, it'd be kind of, I don't know. If they dealt with that type of notion, but you're right. I feel like we will get sick of the COVID subgenre or like return of the plague genre in uh, movies. Yeah. It's, it's, it's inevitable. It's going to happen to at least some sort of extent for sure. Yeah. Well, I think with that, we'll wrap it up. Thanks so much for joining and uh, talking about this season of what we do in the shadows. It was super fun. We watched some of the episodes together, so it was uh, yeah. definitely definitely one that we had to talk about here on the podcast. So thanks so much, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, and looking forward to season three and future episodes to come. Jackie Daytona, out. Jackie Daytona, out. <laughs> you nerds that's all i've got for you today that's the episode thanks so much for checking it out and thanks to my guest host jimmy levins for joining me and discussing the premiere vampire mockumentary one what we do in the shadows he and i are both huge huge fans of this ip as we discuss in the episode we both loved the film uh We were fans of the first season of the show, and then they just continued to crush it with the second season. So I'm so excited to see what they have in store for the third season and how that's going to all shake out. If you are digging everything that I'm doing here on Nerds with Opinions, make sure that you are following me on social media at nerds underscore opinions on both Instagram and Twitter. And you can just find me at Nerds with Opinions on Facebook. The Facebook is rather new, but I am uh, posting on all three platforms. Also, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, make sure that you're giving this a five-star review. And if you're on Spotify, make sure that you're following me on Spotify. And if you feel so inclined to share these tracks, the ones that you dig with uh, you know, your, your, your followers, your friends, your family, whatever... That would be very much appreciated. Thank you again for checking it out. As always, I'm your host, Matt Holbin, and you have been listening to Nerds with Opinions.